Hebrews chapter 1, let's begin in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray together. Father, we would never approach your word without asking you to illuminate our minds and our hearts to it. We're grateful that we don't have to pray for you to make it, for you to make it powerful because your word tells us it already is. But we do pray for our hearts to be able to understand what you want to say to us and not just intellectually, but devotionally. We want to be doers of your word. We want to be encouraged by you. We want all the plans that you have for this passage, for each one of us individually and corporately, that those plans would be accomplished. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to commune with you and worship you in the study of your word. We thank you that you are more anxious, to us, for, anxious for us to be in it than we are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Hebrews, it was written by an unknown writer in the late A.D. 60s. We don't know who wrote it, as I said. People debate about it. There's doctrinal dissertations written about it, books. I think it's easier just to say the Holy Spirit wrote it, but that's just me being oversimplified. But I think that as we look at this book and as we recognize its place, in the lives of God's people in our lives, specifically, I think God will greatly use it if we continue to have our hearts yielded over to him. It was written to some Jewish believers, and thus the writer quotes the Old Testament more than any other New, uh, New Testament book does. And so we're going to be steeped in Jewish culture, steeped in Jewish tradition, steeped in the Old Testament, and it's a beautiful thing to be able to see our heritage. Uh, God wants us to know the whole book, Genesis to Revelation. The New Testament isn't any more inspired than the Old Testament. It's all inspired. The Apostle Paul told us all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Not just the NT, but the OT too. And so we have to know that book and that, that, those collection of books uh, as well. Now these Jewish Christians were facing a dilemma they were facing a great difficulty, a great temptation. And that temptation was to go back into Judaism, to go back. That's a temptation for all of us at times, to go back to the place where we were at before we came to know Christ. The enemy can bring temptation and can give us a false sense of what it was like. The Israelites had a history with this. You may remember when they were in the desert and they kept just whining and complaining, we would probably be doing the same thing, saying, oh, how great it was in Egypt, you know, and all, and all that wonderful slavery that we uh, experienced, all the times where we cried out, oh, God, save us, save us, deliver us from this evil Pharaoh and this taskmaster, and we can have 
kind of revisionist history in our minds. And it was happening with these Jewish believers. I want us to, before we get into the verses, I want us to understand the Jewish mind and the Jewish heart, what these people were dealing with. Because it's very easy to read these words on the page and lose sight or have, be disconnected from where they were coming from. And once we understand a little bit where they were coming from, it'll help us be able to see the rest of the book. Because obviously they were uh, kind of dealing with some difficult things and all these things that are written to them have to come through as far as they were concerned, first through their experience, what they were going through, and so that context will greatly help us. Their Jewish heritage was very, very important to them. All that that is familiar to them and was familiar to them was very important. And, and it's, it's easy for us Gentiles, those of us that are non-Jews, to forget just how interwoven their, their traditions and who they, who they were and what they were about was kind of put through their whole fab, the fabric of their existence. And so that we're talking about generation after generation of families that went that that had this 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 belief system and many of these uh believers had come from that background and they had this great heritage that they had to make a a a cultural break from and that happens today i mean people have to leave certain religious traditions to be able to uh, go to God and, and to submit their lives to Christ. And sometimes it's very difficult because generations upon generations uh, have, have experienced uh, that t- particular religious uh, group. And so they, they can relate back to their grandmother and their, great, their grandmother's great-grandmother all the way back. But I don't think any of us can go further back than the Jews could at that time. And we're talking Adam and Eve, we're talking about their history, all that goes all the way back to the beginning. I mean, it's not like they were Muslims, they can go back to, you know, AD 600 or something like that. We're talking all the way back to the very beginning. And so these religious traditions were hard for them to break from. They're very comfortable. Some of us can be very comfortable with things that aren't healthy. I know I can attest to that. Every time I go to, you know, hometown buffet, you know, I can, uh, there's, there's a lot of traditions I have. Uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't go four times through the line. That's a tradition that's probably not good for me. But it's hard to break from certain traditions that are very comfortable. And we can even be in religious environments growing up where we're comfortable. It's not a healthy place. We know that. We've been brought out of that. But it's, it's our comfort zone. It's, our, it's a place that we're, we're used to. We're, we're used to that kind of situation and all the traditions that, that go along with it. So, as we know, is when we leave a lot of those things behind that are unhealthy, we know that God opened up our eyes and he showed us what wasn't right about it and, and how it contradicted scripture. And, and really for all of us, notwithstanding the, the Jewish believers here, that it was a miracle for us to come out of those things. You know, you think of the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or anyone that comes out of a, a world religion it's not just somebody waking up someday and just has a change of mind and, and, and that it's just a mental exercise. There's illumination by the Holy Spirit that opens their spiritual eyes to the truth of what they were involved in and, and God shows them the solution and testifies uh, that Jesus is uh, who he said he is and, and so they need and we need to trust that. And so now these Jewish believers, they're, they're very much uh, struggling now because they have this temptation to go back and, and they're very comfortable and familiar with these things. 
It's not like they have to try hard to go back. It's just like an old glove. You ever had an old glove? Maybe you played baseball. I never played baseball growing up. I was too hyper. I just couldn't sit still long enough to play baseball. I had to play soccer, so it was just nonstop, you know. And, but I've, I've put my hand in a mitt that's, that's been well broken in, and it, and it feels good. It, it feels a lot better than a new mitt. And that's kind of the sense here with these Jewish believers, is that they could just put their hand in that old, familiar Jewish tradition mitt, and it would feel really good and secure. But God had brought them from many of those things, and so now they're being tempted. And the reason why they're being tempted, and we need to know this related to the book, is that they were being tempted to go back because of persecution. Persecution at this time was starting to ramp up pretty significantly. The book was written about 67, 70, right before 70 AD there when the Jewish temple would be destroyed, that Herod's temple would be destroyed under, the, the, of, under Titus, the Roman general there, and, and the whole sacrificial system would cease to exist. And so they were tempted to go back because there wasn't that much persecution related to Judaism. There had been waves of that in Jewish history, especially around the area of Rome, but that, that was a lot more acceptable. There, there was just this issue that people had, obviously we know why, with Christianity. So once they identified themselves with the Lord Jesus, that's it. They're marked. And so the temptation was, well, maybe I'm going to go back to, to that. Maybe it, it, it was okay. You know, it wasn't that bad. You know, and maybe God will understand and I'll just, you know, not be identified with Christ and I'll go back under the law and I'll try to be justified or, or acquitted before God based on my works before him that seemed to be, you know, working a little bit. It worked for our fathers. I mean, they, there's all this crazy mental gymnastics that could have gone on in their minds because when you're tempted, and we all know this from being tempted, you don't always do the best critical thinking in that time. Do you know that? Are you with me? I mean, you're not always just thinking clearly. There's all this craziness that goes on in our minds where we're being tempted at times. So there, this persecution is coming they, they're really feeling vulnerable and weak, and they're, and they're being tempted to go back because of this persecution. And so this writer, whoever it is, this human writer, whoever it is, has some coupled objectives, just two objectives. The first objective is that to demonstrate from Scripture why they shouldn't go back. Now, it's important that I say from Scripture. That's why the writer quotes the Old Testament over and over and over the Jews had a high standard for what they believed and practiced. It was scripture. They did add to it. They had a lot of traditions and so forth, and they added to uh, the scriptures. But having a biblical basis for what they believed and what they practiced was important to them, and the writer knew that. The second objective that the writer had is to warn them, to really warn them. I mean, some people call it exhortations, and I think it's... <laughs> It's like saying someone, you know, they're in a building and it's, it's on fire and you come to the knock on the door and you say, I'd like to exhort you to leave the building right now because it's about to fall down all around you and you're going to die from, uh, you know, the flames. It's, the exhortation really doesn't fit. What fits is, I need to warn you. I mean, we actually need a stronger word than that. You know, just, I don't know what it is, but that's why you get what you get up here. I don't have the right words all the time, but, uh, you know, there we, just for the record, we need a stronger word than warn. Uh, but he wants to, or she wants to, whoever wrote the book, I mean, I don't know if it's a man or woman, probably a man, I don't know. But they want to warn this group 
that there, there's amazing consequences or very significant consequences to them going back. It's not just, well, I could go back or I could not go back depending on, you know, what I decide and then it's up to me and, you know, there's not consequence. There's huge consequences as we're going to get into. There's multiple serious warnings to the, 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 these believers, so much so that some people try to say that these are not even believers because <laughs> it has implications later on in the book. But he calls them brethren, of course, and I believe that that goes beyond just Hebrew brethren. He says that some of them should be teachers by now, that we should leave the elementary teachings of baptisms and resurrection and all. That's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to Christians, and there are, they are tempted to go back to uh, you know, the, the sacrificial system and trusting in their works and rejecting Christ and so forth. And so he has all these warnings. So the big question is, how does this writer by the Holy Spirit show from Scripture, it's very important, from Scripture that they shouldn't go back? And the way he does it is three little words. And this is the most important theme that you could see in the, in the book of Hebrews. And if, and if I catch you walking on the halls or out there and I ask you, you know, what's the theme? Three little words. That's all it is. Jesus is better. That's it. Pass the test already. See? We don't even have to have a curve. You pass. Jesus is better. And so that's what he's going to do. He's going to articulate masterfully that Jesus is better in every possible way. And it, they don't leave anything out. He's a, he's a better, he has a better revelation to man. He's better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses and Aaron. He's better than the high priest. He's a better high priest. He, has, he oversees a better covenant, we're told, in Scripture. He offered a better sacrifice instead of a sacrifice that had to be made every single you know, year, the Day of Atonement, a better sacrifice, which results in a better faith. Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. All of that is because Jesus is supreme. And better than anything that could have happened uh, to the contrary of what he did. Which means a better reward. The better country he talks about. Uh, uh, he talks about in Hebrews 11 that the, those saints of old, they were looking for a better place. This world wasn't worthy of them. All of that is because Jesus is better. What they had was good. I'm going to make that very clear. What they had was great. But it's in contrast to the sun and the, the new covenant and all those things, it makes it look incredibly bad. Let me give you an illustration. Maybe you might relate to this. Maybe if some of you do, I, I want to know this. Um, let's say that you own a very, very nice car. Let's say it's a Lamborghini. I remember when I was a kid, that was it. Rolls-Royce, nah, Rolls-Royce, Rolls-Royce, I don't... I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in a Lamborghini, you know, where the, the, the doors come down, you know, and I can go 180 miles an hour, and zero to 60 in, you know, negative two seconds. I don't know what it was, but I, I was very excited about Lamborghini. Let's say you had a Lamborghini and you went to, uh, to trade it in. And so what you did was you went to a car lot that was full of clunkers. And you looked at this 1973 Pinto, Ford Pinto, Hope no one drives a Ford Pinto. I haven't seen one out there, but, you know, if you do, I have an 88 pickup, so, you know, I'm with you. But let's say that you have a 73 Pinto, and you want to you wanna trade that in the opposite way. You know, usually trade-ins, you know, you trade something that's not good for something that's even better, right? Well, this is the opposite. 
And they come, the salesman comes out and says, hey guys, you got to see this. This guy wants to trade in this Lamborghini for a 73 Pinto that no one, no one wants. That's kind of the picture here. Because what they have now is like a Lamborghini. It's infinitely better. I mean, these comparisons don't even do justice to what they had compared to what they traded it in for. And so now they're wanting, they did this trade in before and they got the Lamborghini. Now they're wanting to bring it back and trade it in for a Pinto. Comparatively speaking, it is a Pinto. Uh, and, and, but it's far beyond that. And that wouldn't make any sense. So that's, that's what this writer's trying to get at. He's trying to show them that what you have left is inferior to what you already have. And for us as believers, we're not, most of us are not Jewish and, uh, you know, all of that. But what we do need to remember as we go through this book is that there's nothing that's better out there. And we need to fully appreciate what we have. It is so amazing. It is so superior to anything out there that we need to properly, uh, you know, appropriate those things that are ours and to enjoy those things, how God intended us to enjoy those things. Because if you take the Jewish system and the Old Testament and the prophets and all that, there's nothing in this world that even comes close to that. That is amazing, that whole thing that he did. I mean, Paul talks about it with great affection in Romans chapter, I believe it's chapter 9 where he talks about to them is their covenants and the, the, he just goes on this long list of all the heritage that they have and it's all communicating a huge privilege. So as great as that is though, comparatively speaking to the Lord Jesus and all that he is and offers, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's the pinto, you know. And so, uh, you know, they, they had no idea that two or three years from this point, that temple that they loved so much, that Jesus said, see the stones? Not one of these stones are going to be left on, on another. It's all going to be thrown down. And he knew that. And it wasn't intended to be a, you know, a thing where it goes on forever and ever and ever. Because when he came on the scene, they were all supposed to leave the old wineskins and go to him and have the new wine, the new thing that God was, was doing. And so God forced that thing to stop. By t- it was supposed to uh, take away the whole system because without the whole, the whole thing's based on the sacrificial system. God took that away because with the temple and all of that. And, 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 of course, it's still going today. They've reinterpreted all these things, and now they don't need blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins as they always believed. They've changed the whole thing. But that whole thing was done on purpose, and so these people have no idea that that, that which they hold so dear, and, and much of it is dealing with the sacrificial system in the book of Hebrews. All of that was going to go away. And, but even if it didn't go away, they had so much more that was superior to that. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing they're supposed to see they're in the middle of and value those things as should we. Now the chapter divides up this way. We're not going to cover verses 4 through 14. Again, I had that in my mind as I just humored myself, I guess, that we were going to get to that. But verses 1 through 3 speaks of Jesus being better revelation. Verses 4 through 14 speak of Jesus being better than the angels, which we'll tear into, Lord willing, next week. So this week, we're dealing with that he's a better revelation. So he begins in verse 1. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So he says, the key word there, spoke. He spoke. Now, this is in contrast to all that, they've, all that the rest of the world has experienced in their history. Sometimes they referred to those idols as dumb idols. 
So they didn't speak. They couldn't speak. We get so used to thinking about God speaking because of our heritage of the Old Testament and the Jews and all that, but that is not typical. That's, I mean, God didn't speak through all these false gods. He, they couldn't because they're not alive. 61 times in this book, God refers to God speaking. It's a, it's a huge privilege to know that our God speaks to us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I've said many times, revelation is a privilege. Jesus said that he, he lets his friends know what his father is doing. That's why he says, that's why I call you friends. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. He says the intimacy that we get to enjoy in part is revealed by the fact that he reveals so much to us. But our hearts have to be open and ready for truth. The parables demonstrate what our hearts are. If our hearts are open for truth at any cost and we're open, parables give further understanding of what Jesus said. If our hearts are closed and not wanting truth, then it conceals the truth. It's all based on how open our hearts are. And so here we have God, and I love how he starts the book, God. What a better way to start, and you couldn't have a better way to start the book, God. Usually these epistles start with the writer's name and who he's writing to and a blessing and a thanksgiving and all these things. He just starts right out with God, and I love that. But notice the two times he says the word various in verse 1. He says, various times, various ways. I love that God doesn't work by a formula, aren't you? He doesn't just work the same way all the time. Jesus didn't heal the same way. He didn't speak the same things. I love variety. I mean, we have agape feast today. It's one of the re- I mean, it's a great representation of the variety of the body of Christ just in the food that we bring. I say that all the time, but it's true. I love diversity. It's how God made us. He made us diverse. And so God worked very specific ways. He spoke in various ways at various times. That's what the verse says. He spoke to Adam and Eve. He spoke to Noah. He spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He spoke, I mean, over and over again at very specific times. He, he spoke revelation that they needed to hear. And so what, what we're in the middle of here is something that's so much greater than what the Old Testament saints experienced because we literally have the spirit inside of us who testifies to our spirits that we are children of God, those of us that know the Lord. So we commune with him and constantly, and the Jews would never dream. And these believers are, are experiencing this at that time. The Old Testament saints would never, ever dream that the Holy of Holies could be inside of me and the Spirit of God could be inside of me and he can speak to me and guard my life. It's a beautiful thing. But this author says that there's all kinds of ways and at different times he spoke in different ways to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. It's literally in Son there at the end of verse 2. In Son. It's beautiful. In the Son. So the Son is superior to, to everything, including the, the, the prophets. As wonderful as the prophets are, they're wonderful. Isaiah, Jeremiah, you go down the whole list. The minor prophets are not less important than the major prophets. It just means that the books that, that they wrote were shorter. That's it. They're all equal. The prophets are, are amazing. And, and, but God the Son is intimately superior or infinitely superior to them. And so because of that, we value his revelation in a very significant way. And he says in these last days, well, the, the big question is, when do the last days begin? First time it's mentioned in the New Testament is the, in, on the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up and he's quoting Joel. And he says, 
this, is, this was spoken by the prophet Joel, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And so the last days was the time where Jesus began the, the whole new covenant and, and began his public ministry and God poured out his spirit upon uh, the, the church because of his public ministry and his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection. So a lot of times we like to refer to the last days as, you know, just, the, you know, since 1978 or something. You know, it's like, it's only, well, maybe just the 2000s, you know, it's changed, you know. But we're talking about the last of the last days when we refer that way. Like any moment, you know, Israel becoming a nation in 1948, that's significant. You know, all these things are coming together and we're seeing a lot of the things that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24 that's, that point to the second coming, not the rapture, the second coming. All those things starting to come together, the, the rapture seven years before that. And so we're starting to see all of that. Of course, it's a very significant time. But the last days started at the, in, the, in the new covenant time where Jesus came and his ministry uh, began there. And so... That revelation came when Jesus came on the scene. He came and he said, I'm going to represent the Father to mankind. You know, you remember when Thomas was there and he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, and so Jesus was the final revelation. And that's important for us to, to hear. He's the final revelation. And that begs the question, well, what about prophecy? You know, what about, um, you know, we see prophets in the, in the book of Acts, the, uh, the scriptures were written by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament, subsequent to Jesus' public ministry. So how is that, how is he the last revelation? Because all those things are pertaining to him. Prophecy, uh, the, the, the New Testament, it's all related to the final revelation of Jesus Christ and, and what he says about God. And there's not any new revelation that's coming that's going to contradict his word, contradict the new covenant and what it's about and so forth. And so that's what he's getting at there uh, in um, verse 2. So Jesus's words were very significant in his public ministry. I want to read you a few verses related to Jesus's own testimony about his words in his public ministry. He said in John chapter 12 verses 42 through 50 this, it says, nevertheless even among the rulers many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, and whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and uh, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whoever, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. You ever see Jesus speak a wasted word? I haven't. He spoke every single thing he was supposed to speak. Didn't waste one syllable. Everything he said came directly from the Father. That's what we just read. He says, everything he wants me to say, I say. The Father had an exact revelation he wanted revealed about himself. 
And it was true about his works too. Jesus said, I always do that which pleases the Father. So his words and his, and his action and his deeds complete the revelation that he gave to mankind about who God is. No other belief system can say that. But even more narrowly towards these Jewish believers, no prophet could say that. And he's going to get into no angel can have these claims either. No prophet that ever came fully represented the Father and did and said exactly every single thing that God would have him say and did every single thing that God would have him do. Only the Son did that. So that's, they needed to see that. There's no prophet, there's no revelation that's better than the Lord Jesus living a life before mankind, saying the things that he said and doing the things that he did. Now, the, the rest of the verse and into verse 3, he further describes the Son. He says, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So now, as God the Son, you know, as, in his divinity, he already owned everything, right? I mean, it's one God. It's three, three persons in the one God. But as the God-man, the human side of him, the part that was human and it still is human, in heaven, he is he received uh, an inheritance there, and and then he says, through whom that is the Father is working through the Lord Jesus, through whom he also made the worlds. And the worlds can be translated ages, and people debate whether or not it's you know worlds or ages. I think it's probably ages. I mean, it's all encompassing. He created everything. But he's further describing who this Son is. It's not just that he's superior to prophets, but he's someone very specific. And he had very specific actions that he demonstrated so that he showed who he was. And one of those things was that he's the creator. And he's, in John chapter 1, verse 3, it's a very familiar verse, but we've read it before, and it says this, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So John the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, revealed to us further that the, the Lord Jesus was the agent that the Father used to create the, the, the universe. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 tells us the same thing, where it says, He is, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now in that verse, in verse 15, when we went through Colossians, I covered that the word firstborn does not mean literally in a, in a, in a, in a chronological order that someone was the firstborn. That, that was the meaning related to you know, the, the, the humans and the Jews and the firstborn. They were actually the firstborn. But it's also a word specifically in that context talking about one that's preeminent. The preeminent one. He's the preeminent one. That's the whole point. And they, the Jehovah's Witnesses try to change that and make it sound like he was the first one created. And, and, and that's very problematic, obviously. But he was the one that created and he spoke and the universe came into existence. And there's nothing that is beyond his dominion. He oversees it all. He, he is sovereign over everything. And it said all things were created through him and for him. That could never be said of the prophets related to these Jewish believers. That obviously these prophets weren't the, the creator. Nothing was created through them. Nothing was created for them. And then he said he is before all things and in him all things consist. Very important for us to see that. 
So here they are, they're, they're, they're being tempted to go back, and this writer is just saying, look, he's, he's everything and more that you could possibly imagine. He is the creator. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. See, that's the crazy mental gymnastics they were doing. I'm going to leave Jesus and go back to my relationship that I had with God in, in Judaism. And the, the, the thing is, what he's trying to get out here, and he's going to get into the deity of Christ in a second, but if you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God. It's not like one or the other. Jesus is the creator. So if you can't leave Jesus and, and, and go to God and think that you're not rejecting God, you are rejecting God all at the same time. Again, he's getting into the sobriety of it and the seriousness of it. And so he adds in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. What a beautiful verse describing the divinity of the Lord Jesus. You can't get any more specific than that. The brightness of his glory, that is the Father's glory, and the express image of the Father's person. You know, that word express is a word they would use to stamp things, to stamp a mold. I don't know if you've ever seen those, those fun things that kids like to have. My kids have had them before. And I heard someone else explain that their kid had one, and I thought, you know what, that's true. I've, I've, I've experienced that little fun toy thing, and it is a good illustrations I thought I'd steal it so you're okay with that I'm sure but uh, it's just those little things with the pins you know you put the the thing up to your face and it makes the image of your face you know and it's not always a pretty picture depending on your face I guess mine I wasn't I wasn't very encouraged by what came out of that thing but you press it up against your face and it makes that image that's a great word picture for this is that the all that the father is Jesus was the physical image of that for us to see. Because we're told in Scripture that no one has seen the Father. He's spirit. But Jesus is divine. And he's, we can see him and his character and who he is and his essence and all those things are, is, is just as much God as, as anything that we could ever think about related to the Father's deity. And then he says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Some translations say his powerful word. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that in him all things consist. He holds all things together. Many people don't know that about the Lord Jesus. He's holding everything together. And it's been said that he was holding together the cross when he was dying on it. He was holding together the nails that went through his hands and his feet and this, the spear in his side and the, and the spit that was on his face and the, and the fists that were punching him in the, in the face and the crown of thorns and all those things. He was holding all of that together concurrently with the experience of going through it. What an amazing Savior. Talk about you know, not having to go through it or when he said, I could call legions of angels to come to my assistance, but he willingly did it. He said, no one takes my life but I lay it down. And if I lay down my life, I can take it up again. From man's perspective, Jesus was murdered. From God's perspective, his life was given willingly. And that's a beautiful thing. But here he says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. What prophet does that? Those Jewish Christians needed to answer that. Did Jeremiah holding everything together? Is he, was it Isaiah? Or maybe I forgot. Maybe it's Micah, Amos. No, none of them. None of them are holding everything together by the word of his power. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 tells us this, of what's going to happen to this world when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. He tells us this, But the day the Lord will come as a thief in the night, 
in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? As it's been said, there's going to be a big bang, but it wasn't in our past. It's in our future. You know, when Jesus lets everything go, he's holding everything together. He doesn't have to destroy things and knock things together to to create a new heavens and a new earth. All he has to do is just let go of his power that's holding everything together. And then the, the, the elements of this universe will break down in heat and, and, and he will create a new heaven and a new earth. Which prophet could do that? Which prophet holds everything together and can facilitate the new heavens and the earth that's coming? So what I like, though, is the next part of the verse when it says, when he had himself purged our sins. The same one that has the power to just let ourselves go and cells, not selves, we, we let ourselves go, that's our job. <laughs> uh, he lets the cells go, you know, and, and you know, it doesn't make sense why they're held together being, you know, uh, similar charges and so forth. But it, that creator that created everything out of nothing, that holds everything together right now, holds you together, he came and by himself, notice it says, by himself purged our sins. He had by himself, it's emphatic. If he doesn't do it, no one's going to do it. He didn't have any help. He didn't need any help. He did everything. And he did it because we needed our sins forgiven. And it wasn't just that the cross was something special in and of itself. It was who was on that cross. This God that he's just been describing, God in human flesh, the only thing that makes that cross worthwhile or even possible to take care of our sin debt is the fact that it was God in human flesh, the one that that he just got done describing on that cross. And what's interesting is the word purged is in the past tense. Did you see that? Past tense. He purged our sins. In the Greek, it's the aorist tense, which means a completed action that's not ongoing. It's, It's done. It's completed purged our sins. Man's greatest need is to be forgiven. That's what we need. We need forgiveness. And when you think about the Old Testament system, it could only cover sins. That's what atonement means in Hebrew. It means to cover. And those sins would be rolled ahead one year. And the high priest would come in once a year. And that after he had his own sins taken care of or, you know, had a sacrifice made for those things. And he had a rope tied around his ankle and he'd go into that Holy of Holies and he'd sprinkle the blood on the altar there just like God said once a year. And, and that rolled the sins ahead one more year. And it helped cover their sin for that year until it got to the cross. Then when he died on the cross, all those sins that they had committed were placed on him. And then all the sins in the future. We do this wacky thing with our minds sometimes. We think that Jesus died for the sins that led up to when we got saved. And then all those sins after we come to know him, you know, we, it's all up to us to confess our sins for those sins to make us into the people that God wants us to be. And in a, in a relational sense, that's true. Confessing our sins before him, you know, obviously helps our relationship with him. And he tells us to do that in 1 John 1, 9. But our future sins on that, they're all our sins were future sins on that cross. He paid for them all. 
So positionally, I'm right and I'm holy and I'm 100% perfect and holy before him. Practically, I sin and I fall short and I need to confess those sins. But my confidence before God positionally is secure related to what he did for me on the cross. So he says, it's, it's been purged and Jesus said, it is finished. Aren't you glad he didn't say to be continued or take it from here, Jack? You know, or what I mean, he said, it's finished, it's done, it's purged, past tense. And that's why the rest of the verse, he says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's two little words in that verse that are very important that can be overlooked. And to the non-Jewish mind, it wouldn't mean anything. But as those two words sat down, very, very significant because it communicates very, something very specific. And that is his work was done. Did you know there was no chairs in the Holy of Holies? There's no chairs in the most holy place. There was no place for those priests to sit down and kick their feet up and relax. Why not? They did not have the government agency overseeing and have break laws and, you know, all these things. You know, it's because their work was never done. God let them serve the Lord in shifts. But when they were serving, they were serving. And that whole redemptive system was a nonstop system. And they went and went and went and went. It wasn't supposed to ever be something that showed that there's a finished work. It was all supposed to point to the Son who is a superior revelation to mankind that when he purged sins once and for all, that he would sit down. That means it's a completed work. It's a beautiful thing. You know, garages aren't supposed to have chairs in them. This is before man caves, okay? Garages traditionally don't have chairs, Kitchens usually don't have chairs. They're places of work. And that's what it was in, those, in that tabernacle in the temple. It's a workplace. It's a workplace environment. And it's not supposed to be a place where people relax. And so he's going to get into Jesus being a better high priest. And, and the sacrificial system being once and for all taken away or not necessary because of his sacrifice on the cross. He could sit down because it was a finished work. When you sat down at the right hand of a king, it's a place of great authority and majesty, as it says in, in the verse. So again, you could, you could picture these Jewish believers reading this for the first time or hearing it read at, at their church. Sat down? Sat down? What? Sat down? It's finished? Yes, that's what we received. We received a finished work, and now we're going to go back to something that's just going on all the time and no one's resting because the, the redemptive work is never finished? I, nah, that's way inferior. And that's the point of, of the author, to let them know that it is a finished work. No prophet, no priest ever finished the redemptive work of Christ or what made it possible for us to enjoy a relationship with God. Jesus' revelation is the final revelation. Any other revelation that comes is going to be supporting that final revelation and it's going to back up that revelation and we're told that the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints in Jude and it is a finished faith we don't continue I mean we we continue to grow in the context of that that faith and that that's that's good that God wants that but there's nothing that we could ever do to improve on that revelation that's why it's so important for us to study God's word because that revelation is always pointing to the Son and the fulfillment of what he accomplished on our behalf. So we're going to be getting into a lot of these truths and looking at how Jesus is better in so many ways. And God wants us to value what we have. 
He wants to, us to appropriate all the privileges of sonship and daughtership, if that's a word, you know, of being his child, to appropriate all those things and to appreciate those things and to enter into the fullness of those things led by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that this world offers and no religious system from which we came related to our religious experience that could ever be superior to what we already have. And certainly this world is not worthy of our lives anymore whatsoever. So there's no reason to go back to, to that way of living. We've seen that. And we're praying for the youth here to not be impressed with all of those things and for them to make the right decisions the first time. So as we keep these things in prayer, as we consider these things, we pray that the Holy Spirit will give us further revelation on what they mean uniquely for us. And it is a privilege to study it together as a family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, and we thank you for your revelation. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you are superior. Jesus, you are the superior revelation. Everything about you is is superior. There's nothing that outdoes you. There's no one that outdoes you. And we want to live lives that are worthy of all that you've sacrificed for us. We know that only comes by your grace. We know that it only comes by your power. But we want to be fashioned by you. We want to be made more and more holy. We want to be like you and not saying one thing beyond what we should say. We want to speak the very words of God. We want to do the things that you always show us to do, just like the Lord Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you would empower us here as a family and help us to encourage one another and support one another as we grow in holiness. We thank you that we get to enjoy all the wonderful benefits of knowing you, Lord, and it's all free. We can't believe you made it free. We just worship you. We just thank you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.